Do turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. On these Sunday evenings, as we've been going through John's gospel, we've been pausing over these opening words now for several weeks. This 17th chapter of John has often been called the inner sanctuary of the Bible for this reason that it introduces us into something of the inner life of the Godhead. Now, we must, when we say that, add a number of caveats in that we are listening to the Son of God talking to His heavenly Father, that is, the Son of God in His humanity as the God-man speaking to the heavenly Father. But we must not imagine for one moment that within the Trinity that there is any talking going on between the members of the Trinity. There is silent communication, there is instant communication, since the Trinity, the triune God, has one mind. And uh, though there are differences of function within the Godhead, as the various members of the Godhead parcel out, if you will, we're looking at this from our very human point of view, the, the jobs responsible in terms of our salvation for the economy of salvation. Within the Godhead itself, there is no distinction, no distinction in terms of mind or will or power. One mind, one will, one power. And uh, we've been discovering, really, something of the mystery of the Godhead. Well, we've been pressing in particularly to the revelation in these words, not only of the life of the Godhead, but of the great plan of salvation forged in that mind within the Godhead before the foundation of the world. We've been learning what the Nicene Creed says, that what God planned and purposed, He did for us and for our salvation. And as we've been waking our, making our way through this, we come now this evening to consider the prize, the prize that Jesus receives for having accomplished the work that was given Him to do as the God-man. Once again, as we say this, I have to underline that there is one mind, one will, and one power. In the Godhead, there is no priority of the Father over the Son and the Spirit. But within what we call the economy of redemption, that is, in the actual business of saving men and women. In that economy of redemption, tasks and roles are divided out between the persons of the triune God. So we hear the Son speaking to the Father here from the perspective of His flesh. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in the mind of God, in the heart of God, there was a plan to create a universe and to people that universe with human beings and with angels and to so order the life of that universe with a view to redeeming 
and adopting people for God, people who would ultimately see and share something of the glory of God. And that is the great purpose that emerges clearly from these opening words of this chapter. We call that, in theological terms, the pactum salutis, that is the great purpose or covenant of redemption. And to achieve this great purpose, the Father sends the Son in the power of the Spirit, in many ways mirroring something of the being of God. In the being of God, although we must not think of this in any time or temporal way, in the being of God there is a movement outwards. There is a movement from the Father to the Son to the Spirit, the Father begetting the Son, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, though there is no temporal, no time movement there in that there was once the Father without the Son or the Father and the Son without the Spirit. This is all one movement, Father, Son, Spirit. These are the deep things of God. But for our sake, as John Calvin puts it in his Institutes, God accommodates his revelation of this to our level so that we can understand it. Calvin says God talks baby talk. You know what baby talk is. You're leaning over the, you're leaning over the pram, you're looking at the baby, and you go... That kind of thing. Uh, what Calvin says is that what we have in the Bible is God talking baby talk to us. So however hard it is for you to get your head around this, that's what God is doing for us this evening. And as we listen to the Son speaking to the Father, therefore, we're immediately aware of the state of the people. The Son has come into the world to save. It's suggested by this phrase that we're looking at this evening. They they are people who lack life. They're in a state of death. And uh, that state of death is understood, of course, in its full extent of spiritual death, physical death, on their way to physical death, and ultimately on their way to eternal death. And what that means for us, for all of us here in in this room or listening by webcast, what that means is that we are all carrying around in us the seeds of death. We are all by nature dead in trespasses and in sin. We are all by nature without hope and without God in the world. We are dead to God. Therefore, we are deaf to His Word, and we are resistant to His will. We we don't respond to Him naturally. We do not respond to God. And so, we need what it is that Jesus speaks to His Father about here. We need eternal life. And as Christian people, we need to pause over this. Many of us in this room are Christian people. We need to think about this and contemplate this and reflect on this great truth, because the devil is constantly trying to distract us, trying to keep our minds away from such truths as these. The devil would be quite happy for you and me this evening to think about the Christian life as nothing more than a moral mission or a social cause or a personal reinvention that is somehow brought about by our own will and work. The devil 
want you to think like that because when you think like that, you're going to be miserable because you're going to fail in any kind of moral campaign. You're going to fail in, in terms of accomplishing some great social cause or even in personally reinventing yourself. You're going to be a miserable failure. Therefore, you're going to be miserable all the time. You're going to wake up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror, and think, well, I haven't come very far from yesterday. I'm going to rehash the same old questions. I'm going to uh, reinvent the same old problems. I'm going to go over the same old stuff. And by tonight, it will be the same old me that looks in the mirror before going to bed. Because the devil wants to squash any thoughts of joy or delight or happiness that might accompany the realization that salvation has to do with life. It has to do with life. And yet, throughout this gospel, that is precisely one of the major themes that has been recurring over and over again. Beginning at the very beginning, we're told that in Him, that is in Christ, was life and that that life was the light of men, that is, the light of humanity. That the reason the life was coming into the world was that men might have life. Because the eternal Son, we're told, has life in Himself. God has life in Himself. The Son of God has life in Himself. You and I don't have life in ourselves. We have life on loan. We are contingent beings. Our life is contingent on the permission of the Father, on the sustaining work of the Father, of the upholding of the universe by the word of the Son's power. We have no life in ourselves, but the Son has life in Himself. That is the very quality and nature of God. The Son does not have life given to Him. He has life by nature and from eternity. And what we learn from this verse that we're looking at this evening is that from all eternity, the triune God had a plan to give eternal life to a people chosen by the Father and given to the Son. One of the great verses of John, of course, is John chapter 3, verse 13. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did God send His Son into the world? Well, John says, for a negative and a positive reason. The negative reason is so that we will not perish. That is eternally perish. That is be separated from God as far as it's possible to be eternally and irrevocably to perish. What is the positive reason he came? That he might give us eternal life. Later on in chapter 10 of John's gospel, we read this, I, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That is life in its fullness, life with a capital L, life abundantly. And we find this teaching not only in John's gospel, we find it in the Apostle Paul. You remember that great statement in, Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. Now, what this means is this, that the end game of Christianity, the great purpose of God for human beings in Christ, is that they should share the eternal life of the eternal God. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, here we have the essence of Christianity. What is a Christian? Is a Christian someone with a special moral code or political agenda or social program? No. Is a Christian someone who's been born in the West and brought up in a Christian culture? No. That's the lie that the Islamists have bought, and they look at Western culture, and they see it depraved and getting more depraved, and they think, or they say, that's Christian culture for you. No, it's not. No, it's not. Listen to what Jesus says again. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given Him. How would you define a Christian? Is a Christian someone who believes? Yes. To some degree, that's absolutely true. They're a believer. But there are many people who believe all kinds of things. One expression that's often used to me is this. Somebody will say, if I'm sitting in the plane talking to them, I usually try to avoid talking to them. But if they, they talk, you know, I, I certainly avoid telling them what it is I do for a living. But eventually, somebody will ask the question, and, and they will say that perhaps they are a person of faith. It's the most ridiculous expression. I'm a person of faith. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's an empty expression but it's used by people all around us in the world. What do you believe? What are you trusting in? Well, a believer is somebody certainly who trusts. They believe. Is a Christian someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and is justified by faith? Well, there's no doubt that a Christian is someone who is justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That's true of a Christian. That's absolutely true of a Christian. Is a Christian someone who's been forgiven their sins? Yes, a Christian is someone who has been forgiven their sins. That's why they're right with God. Their sins are forgiven. They're right with God. And that all happens because they've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've received Christ. They're resting on Christ for their salvation. They've thrown themselves on His mercy. They've understood that salvation is not a matter of works done by us, that salvation is a matter of sheer grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the alone is absolutely vital. There is nowhere else to go. And on the basis of that, we are accounted righteous before God. Being justified and pardoned clears the way for us to have unqualified acceptance with God. And on the basis of that, we are given the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And mark you, it's that eternal life we need. We need to be justified. We need to have our sins forgiven to have eternal life, but it's eternal life that we need. And a Christian is someone who has eternal life. This is the gift 
that they are given by God. They have eternal life. Now, we could look at this from another perspective. Because since the fall of our first parent, Adam, we have all lived as a a human race under the reign of sin. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, death reigned from Adam. You see that if you look at the early chapters of Genesis. There's no death. Then Adam sins, and from that point on, we read this terrible refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And And that's the story. One out of one people dies. The statistics of death are absolutely perfect. It's the reality that we face all the time. Death is the problem. Now, in the Bible, death is described in a threefold sense. There's physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. There is uh, spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And there's eternal death, the separation of the soul and the body from God forever. There's death in its completeness. And this trend has to stop. And stop it does in Christ who is the resurrection and the life. We saw that earlier on in John's gospel when at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus makes this great revelation to Martha as he's speaking to the sister of Lazarus who's dead and buried. And Jesus teaches Martha this great lesson. We're grateful to Martha for sharing what Jesus taught her at the graveside of her brother with us, or with John, who who records it and tells the story. Jesus says to her, I am resurrection and life. Now, what does it mean, therefore, to have this life about which Jesus is praying here? Well, one of the ways to look at this again is to look at a passage, for example, from Paul in Ephesians 2. And there in Ephesians 2, Paul states the problem we have in relation to spiritual death, first of all. This is how he puts it. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he now underlines, he, he fills out what that looks like. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a description of spiritual death. Doing my own thing, following the crowd, going with the course of this world, under the influence of Satan, doing what I am by nature as a child of wrath, like everybody else, going to hell, dead in trespasses and sins. 
And it's against that dark background that Paul then goes on to describe the spiritual life that Jesus brings when he says that God made us alive together with Christ. He uses a word, quickened, resurrected. He breathes life into us. Let me read to you how Paul puts it. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he adds, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the project that Jesus is speaking to His Father above in this prayer that we are reading. You've given Him authority on earth to give eternal life to those whom you have given Him. This is the project conceived in the mind of God before there was anything exterior to God, before He created the universe, before anything existed, before angels existed, before heaven existed, before earth and the universe existed, before people existed. In the mind of God, here is the project planned and prepared that the Son in His incarnation would be given authority by His Father to grant eternal life to those the Father would give to Him. Isn't that amazing? Ezekiel pictures it in that great vision that uh, Ezekiel has. You remember, he sees a valley of dry bones, damn bones, damn bones, damn dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And, and uh, the, that was a free uh, recital uh, this evening. Uh, as, uh, as he sees the bones in the valley, you remember, he's told to do something that preachers are told to do all the time. God says to him, go preach to the bones. And every Sunday, every Sunday, I preach, I'm preaching <laughs> to the bones. Uh, some of you have got skin on your bones, and some have got life in the body, but here's Ezekiel's task. He preaches to the bones, and as he preaches to the bones, the bones begin to reassemble themselves. And as he goes on preaching, the, the bones are covered with flesh. And then God says, preach again, and he preaches again, and and the breath of life, the spirit of life, fills them with life, and they come alive, and there's a great army of people alive. And as we preach the gospel, we speak the Word of God, we speak the Word of God, the breath of God accompanies the Word of God that you hear, and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and that Word of God speaks into dead people's minds and makes them live into dead people's ears to make them hear into dead people's lives and makes them live by the power of God. That's the business that we're in. We're in the resurrection business. And resurrection begins with the resurrection of the soul, the resurrection of the spirit. It begins internally. That's where it starts. That's the first step in the ultimate resurrection. The next step in resurrection has to do with the rest of you, your body, your mind, who you are, your spirit, and so on. 
As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we need, we need to take more seriously in the church generally, we need to take more seriously the state of people who are not yet alive in Christ. They are dead. They are deaf to His voice and to His Word. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. Now, we, although we believe we believe these things, we actually very often think otherwise. We, we talk or we practice our church life and our evangelism and so on as if we, we're actually not convinced that this is the case. We're quite prepared to think perhaps that, that human beings are in the intensive care or in the emergency room or whatever. I don't know the jargon here. and My translators are all dumb and not shouting out to me what I should really be talking about here. In the intensive care unit, that's where they're on monitors and they're all up to machines and there's a breathing thing helping them, keeping them alive and all the rest of it. That's our impression of humanity. That if you go close enough and you whisper in their ear, they'll hear you. That if you touch their hand, they'll move and respond to you. That somehow or other there's still life there. What does the Bible say? There's no life there. They're corpses in a morgue. When I was a student, I used to work in a, a hospital, and the job I didn't like the, the most, I, I didn't mind dressing dead bodies. That was fine. That was okay. And then sending them off. But the job I didn't like was when I was given notes or whatever to take to the morgue, and you'd walk in there, and there would be these bodies all peeled back into what the things doing horrific things to them. I just could not look at what they were doing to them in the morgue. That was just a bit too much for me. They were as dead as dead could be. You could see that. They were doing all kinds of horrific things to them to check out what the cause of death and so on. That's the state of humanity, dead. And so that means that no amount of methodology, no amount of technology will raise the spiritual dead. It strikes me as very passing strange sometimes that in certain, in certain circles, we have people who should know better who are saying, if, if only we simplified our sermons, we'd see more people converted. Like, really? They're dead. <laughs> I mean, they're dead. Simplifying, you know, and speaking slowly and making it simple and not saying anything with big words is not going to make a dead person any more responsive. It's only the Spirit of God can infuse life into dead people. Do you notice the language that's used here? It's the language of Jesus giving eternal life. This is what He does. All we do is preach the Word of God to people. But Jesus must give people eternal life. He must do it. It is His gift. Do you notice? Only He has the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given to Him. That emphasis there on eternal life is the gift of God in Christ Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. So sin earns you something. Sin earns you death. 
Being good doesn't earn you life. Being moral doesn't earn you life. Being religious doesn't earn you life. Being a churchgoer doesn't earn you life. No, it's the gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is entirely unmerited and without the Spirit's work in our hearts, unwanted. We don't want it. We just don't want that until God makes us willing in the day of His power. Who gives this gift? None other than the one who's praying the prayer, Christ alone. Christ alone gives eternal life. And it's the conviction that runs right throughout this gospel that it is believing in Jesus alone whereby we may have eternal life. So if you trust in Him, if you trust in Him, you take His Word and believe His promise, I have the authority to tell you that if you do that, you will have eternal life. Because if you do that, it's because Jesus is gifting you eternal life. He makes us willing in the day of His power. And you see how he goes on to expand on this thought in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, part of what it means to have eternal life is that we become theologians. We come to know God. That's not just theoretical knowledge, of course, but it includes theoretical knowledge. We need, you need to know about someone to get to know someone. Isn't that true? If you want to get to know someone really well, you need to spend time with them. You need to listen to them. You need to watch how they operate, see what they do, find out what they think, listen to what they say. The more you listen, the more time you take, the better you get to know them. It is the same with God. We're getting to know God. That's a description of what Christians are. That's why we come to church. We're in this business of getting to know God. We're going to spend eternity getting to know God. We will never, ever reach the depths, the, the amazing depths of who God is. We'll always be learning. It will never come to an end, so we might, might as well start right now. I'm going to end by just saying this, because uh, uh, obviously we've no time left, because they keep winding that clock forward at night for some reason. Uh, he, the one thing that's specific, do you notice in verse 3 here? The only God there is to know is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that every other God is not God. Even those religions that believe in one God and they believe that one God is the Creator, if they deny that that God is not the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if they deny that that God is not Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping an idol. That's what it means. It means there's only one true God. 
and that one true God is known through Jesus Christ. We said this morning when we were looking at Isaiah that when God speaks, it's Jesus you hear. When God acts, it's Jesus you see. He is the Word of God. He is the action of God, the arm of God in action. Because the God who is there shows Himself to humanity, speaks to humanity in Christ. The movement is out from the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit towards us. And as Peter said to the crowds that he was addressing in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved than the name of Jesus. So here is the gift of God. It's eternal life. It begins now with uh, spiritual life as we come alive to God and we trust in Christ. All of that's the evidence of spiritual life. The next phase is resurrection body. When Christ returns again, a a, a sin-free, sickness-free, death-free body, and then the life of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, eternal life. You've given Him authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, believer, rejoice in this, that you have received eternal life. That means there's going to be no end to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this evening you would comfort our hearts by the knowledge that by your grace, if we are believers here this evening, that that faith is the gift of God. That if we've been assured that our sins are forgiven, then that knowledge is the gift of God. And thank you that those elements are evidence that you have given to us eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Son. Help us to live with joy in the light of that, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.